Nick, I can't believe COVID is still going on. And we also have something called the Delta variant that is basically making all of our numbers go back up again. It's really been a crazy year and a half. I know. And I think one of the things that I'm really happy for is that as I'm like standing in the ante room, getting ready to get all the carb on and going into a room and thinking about like, what do I need to do for this pregnant patient? I have the OBG project resource literally in my pocket on my phone that I can scroll through quickly before I have to put it down and get the gloves on. One of the great things about the OBG project is that you can also subscribe to OBG First, which allows you to create your own bookshelf. It allows you to have all those handy resources right where you want them instead of having to scroll through everything. Chief residents can actually get a free year of OBG First by heading over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, and checking out the sidebar. Residents in general can also get access to the resident core curriculum for absolutely free. Again, head over to our website, check out the sidebar. You can get all of these resources from the awesome folks at the OBG Project for absolutely free. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. Coffee. So today we are going to be doing a update to our prenatal genetic screening and testing episode. So this is going to be an update from, I think our first episode on this was like, definitely like lower than episode 10, like maybe episode five or something like that. A long time ago. Beginning of our podcasting days, Nick. So what are our learning objectives for today? So first we'll discuss the different types of genetic screening tests we offer and what they're able to detect. Um, We'll then review some of the follow-up things to consider after abnormal screening. And then finally, we'll understand management of abnormal screening tests and diagnostic testing. Um, Reading material for today, if you've got some time to scroll along, is Practice Bulletin 226 and Practice Bulletin 162. So Faye, I've got a big question for you. How do you provide genetic counseling to a patient? Yeah, so this is something that I think, you know, we have to do more often now as MFMs. Uh, But, you know, I think every OBGYN should be able to at least talk a little bit about the basics of genetic counseling with their patients. Um, Because ultimately, you're going to be the ones talking to them about, you know, what type of screening tests that they get or diagnostic testing that they get. So first of all, I think the biggest thing I tell people is that every pregnancy has a risk for genetic abnormality. And that risk, while it's overall very low, does increase with increasing age. And so if we, for example, were to look at, you know, all chromosomal abnormalities based on age, that risk is about 1 in 200 live births when someone is 35, and that can increase to as high as 1 in 20 in every live birth for someone that is 45. The average rate of a genetic abnormality is 1 in 150 live births. And of course, this risk is also based on the family history. And so before, um, you know, I kind of talk to patients about this, I will usually review with them their family history of birth defects, talk about, you know, are there any actual diagnoses of genetic disorders that are in the family prior to talking to them about all of these things. We'll post the risk of abnormalities based on age that uh, the ACOG practice bulletin actually has. 
The next step is then I review the options for genetic screening and genetic testing for patients, and we'll talk a little bit about the differences in the two types of tests. So I tell them that all types of genetic screening is limited, and all genetic screening tests detect fewer abnormalities than diagnostic testing, especially with something like microarray. And diagnostic testing especially includes CVS and amniocentesis. Basically, screening and diagnostic testing should be discussed and offered to all patients early in pregnancy, regardless of their age or their baseline risk, because like I just said, every single pregnancy has a risk of having a genetic abnormality, no matter how small that risk is. So then I think, you know, we can talk about the types of tests that are available. So Nick, talk to me about some of these pre-implantation tests. So let's say your patient, you know, is coming to you and says, hey, I want to do IVF, what testing is available to me? Well, hopefully they're not coming to me for IVF. Um, no. Because <laughs> then they showed up at the wrong office. But yes, I I were counseling somebody about genetics and they were hypothetically going to do IVF. We could talk with them about pre-implantation genetic testing or screening. PGTA is one form of this. This was formerly called PGS. And is, again, PGTA, the now acronym stands for pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. This entails a biopsy of an embryo at the blastocyst stage, usually around day five to six of development, where cells are taken from the outer layer of cells known as the trophoectoderm that will eventually become the placenta. PGTA just screens for aneuploidy, and the idea is to increase the chances of live birth in that IVF context by screening for embryos that have aneuploidy. Patients should still be offered the usual genetic screening in pregnancy because even with negative PGTA results, the diagnosis from PGTA only represents a few placental cells. And so ultimately, you may want to have additional testing or things that look for what goes beyond just aneuploidy screening, depending on exactly what tests you're offering. PGTM is another form of pre-implantation genetic testing. And this M stands for monogenetic or single gene mutations. So this is the same as PGTA in principle and how the cells are gotten. But in this case, rather than testing for aneuploidy, we're testing for a monogenetic disease or single gene mutations. So this can be used to choose embryos that don't have a genetic disease. So you could screen, for instance, for embryos that don't have Huntington's disease or that have cystic fibrosis. Importantly, the disease and the mutation have to be known beforehand um, because you're doing a very, very targeted screening here. So you're not like just going fishing for Huntington's or cystic fibrosis. You have to really know what mutations you're after to do this effectively. Because it's so, so targeted, you can't detect all genetic abnormalities. You're really only going to find the thing that you're looking for. So again, if you're wanting to do something that's more comprehensive, offering screening later in pregnancy is appropriate. Finally, there is PGTSR, and that SR stands for structural rearrangements. This is a very niche area of PGT that is useful when there are parental structural chromosomal abnormalities. So this can help detect things like translocations, inversions, deletions, insertions, etc. Um, all of those sort of genetic chromosome words that you learned once upon a time. 
Of note, um, with any form of PGT, again, we're sampling what cells ultimately become placenta. So there can be misdiagnosis in PGT due to things like mosaicism, um, which is where there are basically two or more different cell lines that make up the placenta and or the fetus. Um, so patients should still be offered genetic screening or testing once they are pregnant to basically do confirmatory or additional screening. All right, so now that we've talked about the pre-implantation genetic testing and sort of that very, very early diagnosis, the majority of our patients, Faye, are going to come to us when they're already pregnant looking for genetic screening or genetic testing. Yes. So these are probably the screening tests that you have heard of and are more familiar with. A quick note on all genetic screening tests, many of these are very sensitive for specifically trisomy 21 or Down syndrome, but may have less sensitivity for other chromosomal disorders. Um, again, just review with your patients that these tests can't detect other genetic abnormalities like point mutations, deletions, translocations, and most of these tests are really specifically only targeting aneuploidies like T21, T13, and T18. So the first test that we'll talk about is NIPT, non-invasive prenatal testing, right, cell-free DNA. So this test uh, can be done anytime around 9 to 10 weeks to term, and there's a 99 detection rate, or DR, for trisomy 21. It has the highest detection rate of all tests and the lowest false positive rate, but also um, one of the things is that it can also detect maternal aneuploidy or disease. It has the highest sensitivity and specificity, like I said, but it does not test for open neural tube defects, unlike some of the other screening tests. The way that this test works is that it detects essentially that cell-free DNA, the DNA of the fetus that is floating around in mom's blood. And so the reason we kind of have to wait after a certain amount of time, like nine to 10 weeks, is that we do need to get a certain fraction of fetal DNA for us to actually get a accurate result. And so especially in patients who, and I think we've discussed this before, who are obese, you may not want to be doing that test directly at nine or 10 weeks because they are more likely to get a low fetal fraction of the DNA and you may have to repeat that test or talk to them about diagnostic testing afterwards. Um, I keep saying, you know, fetal DNA, but what I actually mean is this DNA is not directly from the fetus. It's actually trophoblastic in nature. And so just to kind of put that out there, that is a little bit different potentially from your actual fetal DNA. One of the things that I sometimes talk about with people is that someone with a screen positive serum analyte test, which we'll talk about, may actually choose cell-free DNA for follow-up if they want to try and avoid a diagnostic test. Um, and SMFM actually does say that you can follow up a positive serum analyte test with cell-free DNA, but patients should be informed that cell-free DNA, while it is very, very good, is still a screening test, meaning that it can still fail to ID some chromosomal abnormalities and overall can delay definitive testing if it is positive. All right, so I talked about cell-free DNA. Nick, what else do we usually offer patients? Yeah, so you mentioned those serum analyte screens, Faye, um, and there are a bunch of these. So to go through a couple, the most common, there's the integrated screen, which is a combination of two blood tests and an ultrasound. The first of these blood tests is done somewhere between 10 weeks and 13 weeks, six days. And the second blood test is done between 15 and 22 weeks. And then you need to do a nuchal translucency ultrasound somewhere between 11 and 13 weeks. 
The detection rate for Down syndrome with an integrated screen is really excellent at 96%, um, but downsides include the fact that you need two blood draw samples and there's no first trimester result. So you have to wait until you're in the second trimester. And if there's an abnormality that ultimately a patient decides to terminate a pregnancy or would manage a pregnancy differently, you don't have those results until much, much later. Specifically with the serum analytes with an integrated screen, you're doing that NT scan with the addition of a PAP-A level in the first trimester, then doing a quad screen, which is the combination of HCG, AFP, estriol, and inhibin A in the second trimester. For sequential screening, this is basically like doing the integrated screen, except instead of doing the combination of tests before you get your results, you kind of look at the results in between. Like the integrated screen, the sequential screen requires those two samples. The difference here is that in the first trimester, in addition to that NT and your PAP-A, you're also getting beta-HCG and plus or minus an AFP depending on where you are. You can actually get a result in between again to give you some first trimester results, but not all places do that. And then in the second trimester, you still do a quad screen. The quad screen we've mentioned a bunch, um, and that's just the second trimester draw, so between 15 and 22 weeks. It has a lower detection rate overall for Down syndrome at 81%. It's a one-time test, but has that lower detection rate than the integrated or sequential screens and also still has second trimester results. There are also a whole bunch of others that we're not going to spend time on today because of just lower detection rates. But you may hear things like the first trimester screen, which is just the first half of a sequential screen using the NT with a PAP-A, beta-HCG, and AFP and the serum integrated screen, which is doing an integrated screen without a nuchal translucency scan, doing a nuchal translucency scan alone, doing a first trimester anatomic survey. There's a bunch of things basically that you can do to assess risk for primarily, again, aneuploidy in the form of trisomy 21 and other things. Again, we won't spend a ton of time on them now, but on our website we'll post that table from the ACOG practice bulletin that goes through all of the various forms of screening that you could potentially offer. Faye, I think one thing that we just don't get exposed to as much, or at least we didn't until now as fellowship, is diagnostic testing. Right. So um, there are two types of diagnostic testing that we offer in pregnancy, and these are considered the gold standard for detecting genetic abnormalities and should be offered after abnormal genetic screening tests. So if you get a um, screen positive for um, some type of genetic abnormality with your cell-free, with any of your serum analyte testing. The first of these is a chorionic villi sampling, often uh, called CVS for short, which is usually done between 10 to 13 weeks of pregnancy. What it does is we are getting placental villi transabdominally or transcervically, depending on the location of the placenta at that time. The pregnancy loss rate over time has decreased um, and now is about 1 in 500. So overall, a very, very low chance of having a miscarriage simply due to the CVS. Limb reduction defect is also very low, around 6 um, out of 10,000. Some risks of the CVS is that it can also cause things like spotting or bleeding. And again, that tissue, remember, is still placental. So there still is that possibility of mosaicism, meaning that the placenta may or may not have the abnormality that the fetus does or does not have. Sometimes after a CVS, you may still need an amniocentesis. 
However, the CVS, because it can be done so early, does offer the patient um, the ability to terminate their pregnancy if they so wish a little bit earlier. The second test is the amniocentesis, and this is usually done between 15 to 20 weeks um, for diagnostic purposes, but can actually be done at any time during the pregnancy. Usually what happens is we have to place a needle into the abdomen, through the uterus, into the amniotic fluid, obtain about 20 to 30 cc's of that fluid, and send it off to the lab. The cells that are obtained from the amniocentesis are directly sloughed off from the fetal skin, and so you are actually going to be getting directly fetal DNA, which is a big difference from all the screening tests, like with cell-free DNA, right? Because we talked about those trophoblastic cells. The reason we can't do an amniocentesis too early is because the amnion and the chorion are not fused until around the second trimester. And so it becomes much more difficult to uh, do an amniocentesis earlier than that. And again, the rate of loss from amniocentesis is overall very low, about 1 in 300 to 1 in 750 pregnancies, um, depending on the studies that you look at. Other complications include things like spotting or loss of fluid, um, things that you should talk to your patients about. Overall, both tests can be done in the office setting, and both are relatively easy to do and also take a short amount of time. One other thing that I feel like I didn't know a ton about, Nick, until you know this last year is what type of testing we can actually send from our diagnostic procedures, like from the amniocentesis and the CVS. Yeah. So what are we really sending for? Yeah, I mean, like off to the lab for genetic studies, right? No, it's a little more complicated than that. <laughs> so I guess what I'll do is kind of break it down into testing as you might see it done um, in the real world. The first test that folks will often send off is something called a FISH, um, which is fluorescent and situ hybridization. You might remember from like a college cell biology class hearing something about this once upon a time. But in the genetic diagnosis context, this uses probes for specific regions of chromosomes um, or the chromosomes themselves. For instance, a FISH could detect a chromosome in the form of trisomy 21 but it can also detect a chromosomal region like in the form of 22q11 deletion or DeGeorge syndrome. This can be done on uncultured cells. So again, you're just staining those uncultured cells directly. So you can get results in as few as two days. Um, so really, really fast. This is good to use if a patient screens positive for trisomy 21 or some other aneuploidy on a serum analyte or cell-free DNA screen, and you want quick results before you get the full karyotype or microarray results subsequently. And that's the subsequent tests. So if a fish comes back positive for aneuploidy, often your confirmatory test will then be karyotype. Um, which is probably, again, what you remember from college cell biology, where you line up all the chromosomes and you look at them on that sort of like gray, black, and white type of field. Karyotype is for detecting aneuploidies like trisomy or monosomy X or Klinefelter syndrome, 47XXY. You need culturable cells for karyotype, though, so this generally takes longer, at least 7 to 10 days. And karyotype, importantly, can't be done generally on dead tissue. So for instance, in the form of a stillbirth, because the cells won't grow from that tissue. So it's an important limitation to be aware of with respect to karyotype and why the fish may be the more important test in that particular scenario. 
After amniocentesis or CVS, if the fish is negative, generally the test then reflexes to microarray rather than karyotype. Microarray is sort of an in-between genetic diagnosis. So there are some things that you can detect really well. Again, those aneuploidies, submicroscopic changes. It doesn't get so submicroscopic that you could, say, pick up a point mutation, but you can identify major deletions or duplications. You also can't detect balance translocations or triploidy because microarray doesn't actually pick up copy number that well. Microarray is done on cultured cells or on uncultured tissue. It can be done on copy number variants if done on uncultured cells, and in this case can be a pretty fast turnaround around three to seven days typically. Okay, Faye, I think that does it for this update to our old, old episode on genetic screening and testing. So why don't we try to summarize? Sure. So um, we started off this episode by talking about beginning counseling by telling people that every pregnancy has a risk for genetic abnormality. And while that risk is overall low, the average rate is one in 150 live births for some type of genetic abnormality. And that risk does increase with age. We should offer genetic screening as well as diagnostic testing to all patients, regardless of maternal age or baseline risk. But it is important to review with them the family history of birth defects, genetic diagnoses, um, as well as previous um, babies with birth defects. There are a variety of tests available for genetic screening, and we reviewed several of them today. Before pregnancy really begins, if someone's undergoing IVF, then you could offer pre-implantation genetics testing. There's a variety of these tests, PGTA, which specifically looks for aneuploidy, PGTM, which looks for monogenetic or single gene mutations, and PGTSR, which looks for structural rearrangements. Importantly, PGT is done from a biopsy of an embryo at the blastocyst stage from the trophectoderm that will eventually become placenta. And so even if you have a negative screen from PGT, genetic screening during the pregnancy should still be offered. So during pregnancy, there are many screening tests um, that can be offered to patients. Most of them are sensitive for things like trisomy 21, but may have less sensitivity for other chromosomal disorders. The first of these um, is NIPT or cell-free DNA, which can be tested anytime around 9 to 10 weeks with a very high detection rate of 99% for trisomy 21. It has the highest detection rate of all tests and lowest false positive rate compared to all uh, of the other tests. But importantly, it does not test for open neural tube defects. Also, we discussed that after getting a serum analyte test that is positive, some people may choose to get a cell-free DNA if they want to avoid diagnostic testing, but patients should be informed that cell-free DNA is still a screening test and ultimately can delay definitive testing. The serum analyte tests that we discussed are things like the integrated screen, which is two screens, once in the first trimester, once the second trimester. The first trimester testing involves a nuchal translucency as well as a PAP-A, and then a quad screen in the second trimester. The detection rate is quite good for T21. It is about 96%. The sequential screen is a little bit different from the integrated screen. Again, it is two tests, once in the first trimester, once in the second trimester. However, in the first trimester, you are getting a free beta HCG, a PAP-A, and a nuchal translucency, and you actually will get a result for screening 
in between the two tests. The second trimester test is again that quad screen, and again, the detection rate for T21 is quite good at 95%. The quad screen itself only has an 81% detection rate for T21, but it is a one-time test. Other tests that we did not mention, but you can definitely look up in the ACOG practice bulletin um, are things like first trimester screening with just the NT and the PAP-A, beta-HCG, and AFP, the serum integrated, where you just do an integrated screen without the NT, as well as the NT alone. We then moved on to diagnostic testing. We first talked about methods of doing diagnostic testing in the form of chorionic villus sampling and amniocentesis. CVS is done typically between 10 and 13 weeks and is done by getting placental villi in transabdominal or transcervical fashion. Pregnancy loss rate is quoted about 1 in 500, and limb reduction defect is formerly thought to be a significant complication, but that risk is very low, around 6 in 10,000. Amniocentesis is typically done between 15 to 20 weeks, but could be performed anytime after 20 weeks as well. We don't typically perform amniocentesis prior to this because the amnion and chorion have yet to fuse. Pregnancy loss rate is quoted between 1 in 300 to 1 in 750, depending on the study that you read. And this, importantly, is different from CVS in that CVS samples the placenta, while amniocentesis gets cells that are sloughed off fetal skin, so you're actually testing fetal DNA in that. The types of tests that we can get from diagnostic testing include the FISH, the karyotype, and the microarray. Remember, the FISH specifically uses probes for things like chromosomes or chromosomal regions and can be done on uncultured cells so you can get results as quickly as two days. A karyotype is good for detecting aneuploidies like trisomies, but you do need culturable cells, and so this does take longer, about 7 to 10 business days. And this usually cannot be done on dead tissue because that dead tissue simply won't grow. Last of all, you can do a microarray, which is good at finding major aneuploidies, just like a karyotype, and submicroscopic changes that you can't see with just a karyotype. However, you cannot detect things like point mutations, balanced translocations, and overall triploidy, and can be done on cultured or uncultured tissue. And so when done on uncultured cells can be a very fast turnaround for things like copy number variants around three to seven days. All right, I think that brings us to the end of this episode, Nick. Um, so once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, and you can find us on our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Go ahead and give us some support, and we may give you a shout-out on the show or some swag. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And if you want to send us an email, let us know if there's any corrections for this show or any other show. Our email is creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>